Now, I know it may seem strange. Uh, even Red asked me this morning, he said, are we still in Esther? <laughs> yes, we are. And it may seem strange that I would be preaching from the book of Esther on Father's Day. And yet, I believe this message that we're looking at today really cuts across gender, cuts across generation, it cuts across all types of diversity. Because this message speaks, I believe, to all of us today as we think about timing and how timing is everything, how God's timing is everything. I want you to look at Esther chapter 6. We're going to cover this in chapter 7, and I know some of you are worried this morning. I think some of the staff, they were a little bit worried when they saw both chapters that I would cover today, and they were trying to make some arrangements because they knew I would just go like 60 minutes. And, and I plan on only going 55, by the way, this morning, all right? But I want to look at chapter 6. I'm going to summarize a lot of this text for you today, but I want to talk specifically, like I said, about timing and how timing is everything. Timing is everything in our lives. I want you to think just a moment. A word that is rightly placed in a sentence. A word that will be placed in the exact area to give the appropriate meaning. It is so important that placement and time, that it is recognized and it is an appropriate for the context. Think about this morning as different ones have sung here different ones in the gathering, different ones here in our blended service, people who would sing, people who would play. Think about how significant timing is. This morning when I was in the choir, I was trying to remember to focus on Jeremy because when I was growing up, I think I was about 12 singing in our choir. And I remember our music minister saying to us, you watch me at all times. No matter what is going on in that congregation, you watch me. And one of the reasons is he wanted to make sure that we were all hitting the note when we were supposed to be hitting it, saying words when we were supposed to be saying it, because timing is everything. Timing is so significant. And yet, may we be honest this morning that many of us have been disappointed. Many of us have looked at God in desperation. And we've said something to the effect, God, where are you during this time? God, when are you going to show up? God, don't you see what's happening? God, don't you think it is time for you to intervene? And I want you to know today that the God of heaven, he has his timing and his plan. And he is the great conductor who is directing and guiding. And even those of us who are not always watching Him, those of us who are not always have our eyes trained on Him, He is still orchestrating events. He is orchestrating circumstances in His own way for His glory and for our good. Even when it seems to be so difficult. I want you to see in chapter 6 and chapter 7 where God intervenes he's been working all the time he's been working up until this point and now his work is clearly visible esther chapter 6 beginning in verse 1 it says that night the king could not sleep so one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the chronicles 
and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigdana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Then the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done. So just reminder where we are in the story, okay? Just for a moment. Because there are a lot of people that are questioning God's timing. Remember, they've not read the book of Esther. Oftentimes, when we think about these stories, we think, Oh, yeah, we we know how it's going to happen. We know how things are going to turn out. But remember, those who were living through these accounts, they had no idea exactly how God was going to work. They did not know that God was going to, to fulfill things in the exact manner that he will. They didn't have the book of Esther to read from. And yet what they had experienced up to this point was, again, disappointment and desperation. All they had seen is that this evil enemy of God, this Haman, had decided that he would destroy the people of Israel. He would destroy the Jewish people throughout the Persian Empire. And what they knew was that he had every authority to accomplish that maniacal purpose. They knew that he had the authority of the king himself. And certainly they recognized that God had put them in strategic positions to maybe do something. But they were looking for God. They were were desperate for God. They had been fasting and praying because up until this point, all you've seen is a world consumed with war. Persia and Greece had been fighting. All you'd seen these frivolous fits of the king where he had dethroned his queen and he had inserted another queen. All you had seen up until this point are the death decrees and ethnic cleansing that would be carried out, the extermination of a people. Where is God? Well, I say to you again, God had been working up until this point, but now God works through a sleepless night. Chapter 6, verse 1, it says, that night. I want to come back to it in a moment, but it says, that night the king could not sleep. Now, Who would have imagined that the whole narrative would turn, the whole plot would turn on a sleepless night? Who would have ever thought that we would be saying, bless God for a sleepless night? Most of us would not do something like that, right? Most of us, if we have a sleepless night, we get up in the morning and we are bears, are we not? Come on, give me some testimony. I mean, if we don't have enough sleep and enough rest, you know the way we... I mean, we're not blessing a sleepless night, but here in this passage, we're actually, we're actually going to bless that God brought a sleepless night to this king. Now, I don't know what it affected him. Maybe it was just God's movement. I believe God was the one orchestrating it. God was the one who was sovereign over this. God was the one who kept him awake. Maybe he'd used some... Well, maybe he'd used the coffee that that the king had had at the banquet that day, huh? Coffee can do it. Coffee can keep you up a little bit. Maybe the king had had a three-piece piece of lemon icebox pie, a three-cookie piece. Maybe that's what I should say, a three-cookie piece. You know what I'm talking about? You don't measure your pieces by cookies, lemon icebox. I'm a two-cookie man most of the time, but three cookies every now and then. Maybe it had a three-cookie piece of lemon icebox pie, and it had kept him awake maybe 
Maybe he and Esther had decided they'd watch a thriller on Netflix and it scared them out of their minds and they decided they couldn't sleep. Or maybe it was the conscience of the king that began to bother him. But based upon what I've seen of the king, he had not much of a conscience. I think the first three explanations might be more plausible than this one. But again, what I want to say to you is that the Lord had kept him awake. It was a sleepless night. And of all nights, notice how chapter 6 verse 1 begins, that night. Why was that so significant? Because the next day, Esther would be confronting Haman in this banquet with King Ahasuerus. So the night before this banquet, the night before Esther is going to confront the arch enemy of Israel, it was that night that God kept him awake. It just so happened, right? Wrong. There are, not, there are no just so happens. There are no just so happens. Our God is intentionally working and orchestrating the events of human history to bring himself glory and to bring us good. Our God is overall. And if God determines he'll use a sleepless night in the life of a king, our God is powerful enough to achieve that. This God was sovereign over a pagan king. Notice what the king said. The king said, Hey, could you read to me? I'd like for you to read. Could you bring out the chronicles, the historical records of the kingdom? Could you bring those out and read to me? Now, I believe he was hoping through that reading that he'd actually go to sleep. It'd be kind of like reading the legislative record of Congress, right? Or maybe, hey, let's get a little closer home. It'd be like reading the business meeting minutes of Temple Baptist Church, right? Bring those to me so that I can sleep. He says, I want to hear the historical records. Tell me about them. Read them. And as they're reading, they're going through these records. It just so happens. God's fingerprints, by the way. God's activity. That they come across this story about Mordecai. Specifically how this man Mordecai had spoken up and had delivered the king from assassins. How he exposed the plot. And the king, hearing Mordecai's name, oh yes, I remember that. Did we ever do anything to reward him? Do you see how this begins to play out? In a sleepless night, God is working. God is orchestrating all of these things together. Proverbs 21.1, I've quoted it here before. I'll read it again to you today. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like the rivers of water. He turns it where he wishes. That is that the king's heart is right in the hand of God himself. And God can squeeze that heart. God can turn that heart. God has the ability over a pagan king to do whatever it takes to protect his people. 
And that's what you see in this passage. Through a sleepless night, God is working on a king. He is speaking to a king. He's orchestrating even, even the record, even the story itself. He is orchestrating it all together to provide deliverance. How encouraging that should be to us today. Because let me say this to you. If God can take the king and he can direct his heart and he can guide his heart, if he can take the king of the whole Persian empire and he can work for his glory and for our good, guess what he can do? He can work in anybody else's life today. You've got an issue with your boss? Let me tell you what. The heart of the boss is in the hand of the king. You got an issue with a teacher or professor? That professor's heart is in the hand of the king. If you've got an issue with your dad or your mom or your son or your daughter, those hearts are in the hand of the king. And you've got to believe that. You've got to believe that our God, who can use a sleepless night, who can somehow take the heart of an individual and turn it in a certain way, that our God still has that power and that ability today. You and I should be so encouraged to know that the just so happens of life are not just the just so happens, but that God has ordained these moments and these circumstances and that He will work on our behalf for His glory and our good. It is the Romans 8, 28 that you see fleshed out for you in the story Here in this Old Testament. A sleepless night. Well, a sleepless night was followed by what I want to call a surprise-filled morning. A sleepless night was followed by a surprise-filled morning. I'm not going to read the rest of this but um, to you right now. But I want you to go home and I want you to read it. Because you see the twist. You You can see how... God, as he is recording this for us, just heightens the plot, how he builds toward a climax. Basically, the king says, hey, did we ever do anything to honor Mordecai? Did we ever do anything to to reward him? They said, you know, king, we've not done that. And the king said, was there anybody in the court right now? Is there anybody around, outside, standing around that I could talk to about this? I'd kind of like to get some counsel. I'd like to get some advice on how we should honor Mordecai. And they said, well, king, you know what? There is somebody out in the court. It just so happens to be Haman. Haman had run to the court early that morning as the sun was rising, I believe. Haman was there. He was there to have an audience with the king. The night before, remember the day before he had had a banquet with Esther and the king. And that had put him on cloud nine. You ought to go back and look at the end of chapter five because it says that he went home and he got to bragging about things. He got to talking about things. I mean, can you imagine he just had a banquet, just just him with the king and the queen. He was probably the biggest name dropper you would ever find. I mean, you've run into those, right? The name droppers. Those who 
try to find esteem and knowing other individuals and associations and they try to tell you about all the people that they've known and nothing nothing against but I just remind you and I need to remind myself we are nothing more than earthly tents no matter who we are I remember Dr. Frank Pollard years ago who was a pastor at First Jackson got to meet President Reagan at the time and all the preachers were gathering around and they were talking about about this great moment. It's like, well, what was it like? I mean, how was this? This was awesome. You got to meet President Reagan. And Dr. Pollard responded. And he said, guys, just, just, just a minute. Just, just remember, he's just a man. He's just a man. Oh, that always spoke to me. But here he was. He went home and he said, hey, you, you see this? You see, you see your dad? You see your husband? You see, I was with the king today. Ahasuerus, he and I are on first name basis. And you know what? I think even Esther kind of likes me. She seemed to smile at me at the banquet. And it says that he began to brag about all his riches and all his children. And he began to tell them all these things about the favor that he had with this king and queen. His wife looks at him and says, you know what you ought to do? I know you hate Mordecai because, I mean, it was still burning within him that Mordecai would not humble himself before his presence. His wife says, you ought to just go to the king and say, hey, I'm ready to exterminate him for what he's done. Oh, I left this out. Haman had built gallows at his place. 75 feet high gallows. So that he could, so he could destroy Mordecai. So he comes early that morning. He's in the court. He believes he's in the best favor ever with the king. And he's about to ask for Mordecai's life. Can you see the irony here? Come on, folks. Enjoy this as much as I have in studying it. Is there anybody in the court? Is there anybody here? Oh, yeah, there's one. He got up early this morning because he wants to talk to you, king. There's one. His name is Haman. So Haman comes into the court. The king looks at him and the king says, man, I got a question. What should I do to honor a great guy? What should I do to honor one who needs to be esteemed, who should be esteemed? Well, Haman He's like, this is my opportunity. I had a lunch with them yesterday. They love me. He's talking about me. Well, king, if I were you, I would get the best clothes you could find. Clothes that you had worn, royal robes. I'd put those on him. And you know that horse you have? I mean, it's one of those that you have... I mean, that steed, I mean, it is so impressive. I would take that. I would put that person on that steed in that royal robe, and I would lead him around town. I would call a parade on his behalf. It's time to throw a party for that guy. It's time to recognize everything that he has done for this kingdom. The king says, man, that sounds like a great idea. Haman, I think you have a point. Haman, would you go get Mordecai? 
Would you put him in those royal robes? Would you put him on that royal steed? Would you lead him around? I mean, he should have the best, best prince leading him around in honor. Would you, would you lead him around town in that parade? Can you imagine? Could you imagine the countenance of Haman? And he recognized that something had gone wrong. And Mordecai, let me just give you a side note. Mordecai was honored. Haman was humbled. I I say this is just a side note because I see it all throughout the Scripture. Those who would exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. It is a principle you see all throughout Scripture. Old, New Testament, doesn't matter. Those who would humble themselves would see exaltation, but those who would exalt themselves will be ultimately humbled. Still the same today. Still the same principle. Hey, it's the principle Jesus demonstrated to us. What did Satan want to do? Satan wanted to ascend into the heavens and to somehow take the throne away from God, which never could happen. But he wanted to exalt himself. He was cast down and humbled. Jesus, the scripture says, humbled himself. I love Philippians 2 again. And and it speaks about how he humbled himself even to the point of death, the death of the cross. And the scripture says about that one who humbled himself. That one day he would be exalted. That he would be given, that he is given a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. Because that's the principle. Humble yourself. You will see exaltation in, in God's timing. Exalt yourself. You will be humbled. Oh, there's so much more to preach there. But I know that Haman had to have, as one commentator said, gravel in his mouth as he proclaimed Mordecai's honor. As he led him through town. Another side note. I guess I'm doing a lot of this this morning. But when I got into this passage this week, so good. Just another side note for for you to process. And that is this. Don't think you are ever forgotten. Don't think that your works for the king have been forgotten. Mordecai's works had been buried in a historical record somewhere. And it seemed like it just had been pushed under the carpet. Who remembered that? God in his own timing would demonstrate his remembrance of the service, of the work, that you have accomplished on his behalf. You know that. I know some of you, you think, oh, I've just forgotten. Is God really paying attention? As I said earlier, is he forgotten? About, is he forgotten? God does not forget. And here, he demonstrates that in Mordecai's life. Well, fast forward again. Haman goes home. He begins to tell his wife all that has happened. It's a whole lot different mood than it was the night before when he was bragging about things. Now he's telling her about the humiliation, how he had to go and he had to parade Mordecai around all of the city. And his wife speaks some poignant words. 
She says, well, from what I gather here, to summarize what she said, she said, from what I gather, you're against Mordecai. The king is for Mordecai. If you're going against Mordecai and he is part of the people that you are to exterminate the people called Jews, then, buddy, you're in trouble. You're in trouble, Haman. You're going to die. Now think about this. Think how sobering this is. There's something prophetic even in his wife's words. And while she's saying this, the king's servants come to get him to attend another banquet. But this afternoon would be a sunless afternoon. What I mean by that, the sun's not going to be shining near as brightly for Haman. Because as he walks into that banquet, as he sits down, he, I believe, can feel the tension that is in the air. I believe he knows. It's almost like he can sense what is coming. Now remember, this banquet had been called by Queen Esther because Queen Esther wanted to talk to the king about a petition, a request she had. So as the meal progresses, the king looks at his wife and he says, I told you, Esther, whatever you ask, up to half of the kingdom, I'll give to you. What would you get? What, what do you want, Esther? You, you've called me again. We're banqueting here. Yesterday we were there twice. I've given you the opportunity to talk to me about your request. Twice you have put me off. Tell me now what you would have from me. And Esther says, you know, there is a man that is trying to destroy me and to destroy my people. There is an individual who is wanting to kill me, take my life, and to exterminate all of my people. And King, I know you've got a lot on your plate, and I wouldn't even bring this up, but this is my livelihood. The king grows angry. Thinking in himself, who would even begin to think about attacking Queen Esther, his queen? And he asked very bluntly, who is it? To which she responds, the enemy. That one who harbors this revenge, this hostility in his heart is none other than Haman. Scripture says the king becomes incensed. He is filled with wrath. He gets up and he walks out into the palace garden. I guess just to cool off. You ever have to cool off? This would be some confession time probably. He goes out to cool off. Haman, what does he do? Well, he does the only thing he can do, beg for his life. As he approaches Queen Esther. And here's another one of those moments. You ought to go read it again. Chapter 7. It just so happened. God orchestrates this. That as the king walks back in. As the king walks back in. Haman trips. He slips. And it's looks as if he is assaulting Queen Esther. Now, I don't know what was there in his path. Now, if the kids were around, probably some Legos were there. Maybe some shoes were in the floor. Fathers, can we get a testimony today? 
There's no telling what it was that he tripped on. But this was a divine trip, a divine slip. As he is there, as he is, looks like he's assaulting Queen Esther, the king walks in and the king says, Oh no, boy! Oh no! What have you thought about doing? You would try to assault my wife. You would try to assault Queen Esther in front of everybody in, in my own house. Oh, you got to love it, don't you? Our God is so powerful and so big that he can orchestrate or use even a trip or a slip. Because our God is committed to his people. Because our God will not see his people destroyed. Because our God will battle against all the forces of evil that come against us. And he'll use whatever is necessary to accomplish that purpose. When I was writing out my outline and I was working through, I was taking the sleepless night, the surprise-filled morning, the sunless afternoon, and I thought, well, the day ends in some way with a suspense-filled evening. I was telling Leslie this. I I usually go over with her my message on Saturday evening to try to work it out. She writes most of it, but, you know, just uh, the things that I've contributed, you know, I'll talk to her about. And I told her, I said, you know, when I write that, when I think about a suspense-filled evening, it is tongue-in-cheek. It is tongue-in-cheek. Because what happens... The king, in his fury, in his wrath, he says, what am I going to do? And there's a servant there, a servant of the king who speaks up and says, well, king, I've heard that Haman has built this new gallows over at his house. (laughs) Seventy-five feet. King, you know, what I heard through the grapevine is he was going to uh, actually hang or impale uh, Mordecai there. You know Mordecai, the one that saved you? That's what he was going to do to him. And the king says, let it be done. And Haman is then suspended there on that pole, impaled. It is a difficult scene to see. It's a difficult scene to try to comprehend. But don't miss that God has defeated the enemy. He has demonstrated his sovereignty again. And in so many ways, Galatians 6, 7 comes to bear. Be not deceived, for God is not mocked. For whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. The gallows, the pole that was somehow determined to be Mordecai's is the same one that is used for Haman.
You see, our God works in his own time to fulfill his will and his purpose. God can use anything. When I read through this story, he can use anything. Sleepless night, a story in the Chronicles, a slip, a fall. God can use it all, right? I was thinking about it when I was working through this this week. How God has used so many small things like that in my life. Hey, he used a call, a phone call, from an impure, impatient man named Dwight Anderson. to talk to me about coming to Temple Baptist Church. And if God can use that vehicle and instrument, God can use anybody, right? (laughs) One of the best things that ever happened to me. Because God can take even the small things. And this is, again, taking those small things and then timing them just right. Because it's about that night. That story. That slip. Because God can orchestrate them all together. In the moments when we think, where is God? In the moments when we're disappointed of not seeing God's activity in more of a visible way. Those are the moments we need to be reminded, first, God is always working. And two, he is working in his own time to bring all these things together to fulfill his purpose and his plan. You can look at the story of Esther, but don't forget as as well the story of Jesus. Do you remember when the Old Testament ends for us, the book of Malachi? There are approximately 400 years between the book of Malachi and basically the coming of Jesus. Matthew's account. 400 years. In seminary and Bible classes, we were taught to call those the 400 silent years. Where it was like God's revelation was not being recorded. There was no scripture. There was no canonical events. But God was working. God was getting ready. How do I know that? Because Galatians 4.4, Paul says, For in the fullness of time, in the fullness of that moment, at the exact time that God intended, God sent forth His Son. So Jesus came at the exact right time. When I have taught some New Testament survey classes over the years, I'll list all the different things that were going on in the New Testament while well, it was the exact right time for Jesus to come. But it was the exact right time. And Jesus came and provided salvation to us to die on the cross, to be resurrected so that we could have life. Oh, those disciples were disappointed on Saturday morning. They were disheartened. You don't believe me? Look at the account. They're hiding behind doors. They don't know what to do. But thanks be to him. 
in his timing, in his record, he stepped out of the grave on that Sunday morning, alive. And because of that, we can know the true power of salvation and forgiveness in our lives. God's timing is everything. I know you think I'm hokey, and I probably am in many ways. But I'm convinced that every one of us is here this day because of God's own plan and purpose. I don't think he's wasted this hour on you or wasted it on me. I think he had a plan and purpose for this service, for this moment. And what I would say to you is, as we have this hymn of invitation in a moment, God, God's talking to you. God's speaking to some of you, and you know that. Holy Spirit is doing his work in your life right now. And some of you, some of you who've been doubting his timing, and some of you who have been disappointed and disheartened, some of you just need to stop now and recommit yourself to the Lord and say, God, hey, I trust you. Maybe that's all it is. Maybe it's God, I trust you in your timing. You can do it right where you are. You can bow your head. You can pray. You can do whatever you want to right where you are. But there's an altar here. You can come to the altar. Hey, did God ordain this day for you as dads to get back on track? Fathers? Some of us who just need to come and say, hey, you know what? I commit myself once again to my family. Because I believe God has a plan, a purpose, and I believe God's working. But I want to hear, I want to hear the conductor's instruction. And I want to be orchestrating life as he wants me to live it. Would you come and commit yourself? And then that last thing. Some of you in this place, you've never given your life to Christ. Now, I know you may come to church. I know you may do a lot of things here, a lot of activities. But I'm going to tell you once again, you're not saved by coming to church on Sunday morning. You're not saved because you attend all of the Wednesday nights or you are saved because you do so many of those other good things. The only way you're saved is through Jesus Christ himself. You have to surrender completely. You have to give yourself to him. Make him your Lord. He loves you. Would you come? This may be the time today on Father's Day. Where you walk down this aisle and you say, I want to accept Christ as my Savior. Because it's His timing in our lives that is so significant, so important. His timing is everything. How is He speaking to you today? How will you respond in His timing? Let's pray. Father. We praise you for this morning. We praise you for this ordained time here in the sanctuary and in the gathering itself. And Lord, we pray that you would speak to hearts. We pray that you would help us to see that this is a, or an ordained moment for us. 
for us to do business with you. And God, I pray that the service would not pass with us without us taking advantage of the opportunity to commit our lives afresh to you. Those who are lost in this place, save them as the Holy Spirit works in their lives. Those who are saved, Lord, help us to recommit. Help dad step out once again and be the dads they should be. Help us as believers to trust fully in your sovereignty and your kingship over our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?